Arnold always held a somewhat dim view of people. He preferred the hosts. It's not a business venture, not a theme park, but an entire world. Welcome to Decrypted, Ars Technica's podcast devoted to the television that we're obsessing over. Right now, we're watching Westworld. I'm Annalie Newitz, your host. I'm the tech culture editor at Ars Technica. And my guest this week, I'm super excited to have Peter W. Singer, who is a strategist at the New America Foundation. And also, he's an expert on robots and war. He wrote the book Wired for War, which I highly recommend. And he also has a new book out called Ghost Fleet, which is a melding of fiction and nonfiction to look at how robots are being deployed in military and combat situations. I'm really glad to have him here. He's going to talk to us all about killer robots, and let's get started. So thanks very much for joining me. Thanks for having me on. I want to talk to you about killer robots, because the fact (laughs) is that as soon as I started watching uh, Westworld, you were the first person that popped into my head, because you are the killer robot guy. So (laughs) (laughs) is that my brand? Okay. (laughs) I think that's a a bit of your brand. And so when we're looking at these fictional robots in Westworld, and I know you've been um, following the show, I'm just curious, first of all, how realistic you think it is that these um, robots would be, I guess, building their identities around what seem almost like traumatic memories of violence. It's, It's almost like we're watching them come to life by remembering being violent or having been violated in some way? Well, the question it raises, and it goes to the Anthony Hopkins character, you know, the the creator mm-hmm. who's almost playing like God, Dr. Ford. In the beginning, I imagined things would be perfectly balanced. Arnold always held a somewhat dim view of people. He preferred the hosts. He begged me not to let you people in. Money men, tell us. But I told him we'd be fine. That you didn't understand what you were paying for. It's not a business venture, not a theme park, but an entire world. How much of the world uh, in the show, but then about us? Uh, how much of it is these embedded values in humanity that we can't escape from? So if you know, you think about it uh, in the show. We have this incredibly powerful technology. Uh, he talks about how when they originally created the um, park, there was a hundred different positive storylines. Even had a bet with my partner, Arnold, to that effect. We made a hundred hopeful storylines. Of course, almost no one took us up on them. I lost the bet. And then, guess what? The guests kept coming back to the the black hat ones, the the, the scary, dangerous ones. Uh, so you know, we have the, another way of putting it is we have this incredibly powerful technology, and what do we do? We created a theme park for sex and violence. Um, that goes to you know how we think about ourselves uh, in the real world here um, with robotics. We've created incredible, powerful technology uh, that's you know straight out of science fiction, uh, and yet many of the uses that we're doing in the real world are for, for example, violence. Um, the Pentagon's been a key driver in the real world of robotics. You know, so for example, we're about 15 years after the um, start of our military operations in Afghanistan after 9/11. We had a handful of drones back then, none of them armed, zero unmanned ground vehicles, so ground robotics. Today, the U.S. military has over 
10,000 drones in the air and another 12,000 on the ground. This summer, uh, Dallas Police Department used a robot to kill, uh, to kill a sniper. So, you know, I think what, what I'm getting at here is this idea of the back and forth between is the show really about robots or is it trying to ask some kind of underlying themes about us? Is that what Dr. Ford created? Um, and frankly, does that get to one of the underlying issues around, you know, the maze and the great escape? Is it something about, um, you know, are the robots becoming all too real? Is that their way out? Yeah, it's such an interesting question. I love that conversation between um, Ford and Teresa, who's kind of, she represents sort of the money in the show. She's, she's mm -hmm. the corporate character. And how did that work out for Arnold? Sadly, he lost his perspective. He went mad. I haven't, as you well know, I have always seen things very clearly. So we kind of understand her motivations, but he has this, it's the reason I, I thought that conversation was intriguing is that he, you mentioned, he talks about the, the hundred hopeful storylines and they offered this to the guests and the guests were like, screw that. And, um, and then I was really curious. I mean, whether that's partly just that people choose those storylines because they know that they're in a game and that maybe in the real world they would make different choices. But it sounds like you're saying no, that, that actually in the real world, given the choice of what to do with robots, um, you know, we're actually choosing violence. I mean, are there counterexamples? Well, we're choosing both. I think it's, you know, if you think about our real world amusement parks, we have Disney World and we've got Las Vegas. Right. So and, and that's essentially they've created um, a, a version that brings those together uh, in the storyline. Now, the question is, is it on planet Earth or is it somewhere else? One of the things, you know, the little Easter eggs that I noticed and it was when Dolores is looking at the moon, the moon in Westworld has all sorts of lines and infrastructure and dots of light on it. Uh, so someone has been building on the moon, um, which then it's either you know distant in the future, maybe not even they're not Westworld isn't even on Earth. But this, I think, you know, what we're getting at is the duality of people and what we want. Yes, clearly, you know, they're they're living out their fantasies, trying to live them out to the extreme. Uh, you know, so you see that with the the Logan character and his um, uh, buddy, uh, what's his name, William. Mm -hmm. You know, who literally put the on the hat. black and the and the white hat, yeah. and uh, you know, they each you know, one is you're going to try and be the hero and save the day in a way that you can in your real world. And the other is trying to, you know, sort of live out all his different um, sins to the extreme. Um, so again, I think, you know, the, the, the show or rather the, the amusement park is uh, trying to, you know, William James described this of war. It's a life in extremis. And that's what they're trying to recreate in this space is life in extremis. My question is, because I feel like the show, I mean, the show is asking these questions like are, you know, what fundamentally are humans like? And, you know, given the chance to have super awesome robot technologies, you know, will we do something? <laughs> will we create sex bots? Yes. We, we <laughs> already working on that. We, Not me, but, you know, the industry. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, I'd, I'd way rather have sex bots than war bots. I think we, we all would. But the character of Ford, who kind of represents definitely one, uh, philosophical branch of, of thought about humanity, he, he really feels like humans don't uh, want to have a hopeful future or a hopeful storyline. He, he's like, you know, we offered them that and they said no. 
Um, and I guess my question... But can I toss something else out yeah, there? Yeah. Um, it might be, and this is something that writers in like the 19th century before World War One argued, is if you're entering an era where there is great peace uh, or where war is uh, so destructive that it can't be allowed to happen, might you create these kind of playgrounds for people to get out these dark urges in a place where, you know, they're committing violence but only doing it against uh, robots? So, you know, this this could be one of the other things that's playing out here. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And it would be so interesting if the twist in the, in the uh, series turned out to be, actually, this is an incredibly peaceful civilization. It's, you know, the United Federation of Planets and and, you know, because of that, we have this one little nugget of, of horribleness that we visit once a year to to get out our, our dark sides. The question really is, can we take seriously, if we look at this at this series philosophically, is it the case that humans will inevitably choose these dark uses for technology? Or is that kind of almost like a, a stereotype of humans? Not stereotype, but a kind of... Uh, a dark idea that we have about humans that isn't necessarily true. And I guess what I'm what I'm trying to get at here is, do you think that there are counterexamples in the real world where people are um, investing heavily in robots that are not just for um, war and death, but also for um, all kinds of other things? And is there a kind of balance in the real world that we're not seeing in Westworld? Absolutely. So we are also seeing work in robotics and everything from uh, you know, revolutionizing agriculture to uh, robotics are being used in the fields of archaeology. To you, you name it, we're using them in these new fields. Um, there are obviously many stories of them as a force for good, whether it's helping to raise you know crop levels and and places that need food to. Uh, you know, the same kind of surveillance drone that's used for targeting uh, and killing in Afghanistan uh, was used to find a lost little girl in a forest. Um, I like how you phrased it at the start. You asked it not as a you know point of um, kind of science or technology, but really philosophy to this question of, you know, are we uh, inherently good or inherently bad? Or are we, you know, do we have a capacity for both? Those are the questions of, uh, you know, religion, um, the Bible, uh, and then the debates we have on, you know, are we predestined to sin or not? Um, mm-hmm. They're questions of philosophy, you know, whether it's Aristotle or whatever. They're not really questions that science gives you a firm answer on. Um, look, that's one of the other things that I think we'll soon get to in um, the series, which is what defines a human and, you know, what defines consciousness. Uh, and that is something that you really can't, you know, sort of write out the software and say, aha, it's created consciousness. That That's a debate in, you know, philosophy too. That's a debate at the heart of the debate of really controversial things in politics today. When is something alive or not? That's at the heart of the abortion debate. Um, and, you know, the, I think the twist, what we're going to have in this show, or you're already starting to see it with um, the Bernard character and the Dolores character is, you know, is it that point of self-awareness that is the point at which consciousness is truly takes hold and we say you're really equivalent to a human can you help me oh, what is it that you want i don't know but this world i think there may be something wrong with this world 
something hiding underneath. You can clearly see her starting to wrestle with it. I think what's interesting is the open question we have now as to whether Bernard, the psychologist in the show, are we pretty, are we sure he's actually a human? He's the chief programmer. And yeah, there's a lot of questions. I, I think he's a robot. I mean, I, you know, it's at the very, I think the fact that he's wearing glasses seems a little bit of a misdirect. So we're in a future of uh, robotic systems and he's wearing glasses. Gosh, that. Um, what, what happened to laser eye surgery? But, you know, in all seriousness, I mean, you can see their interactions. He's asking certain questions that maybe are as much about himself as her. But again, I'm going back to the, you know, what we're getting at here is these uh, these probing sort of deeper questions, which keep coming back to being about us rather than about the machines. And that's the same thing if you're looking at, you know, to your original question, technology throughout all of history from you know the very first stone that was used to uh, either bash someone in the head or build with to drones today, technology sort of uh, it tends to be neutral in its morality. It's the people who use it for good or bad. But the thing that's, that we're really dealing with in Westworld, and I think also in real life as we start thinking about how do you program ethics into robots, um, which is a real issue, um, is that these the robots in Westworld? I think we know for sure uh, are there to the extent that they have consciousness. It's built out of these memories that they're now being allowed to access for the perhaps for the first time. And these are memories of them being abused, uh, slaughtered, raped. You know, they're not mostly happy memories. <laughs> we, I don't think we've seen any happy memories yet. And there's this incredible scene, the final scene in the episode, um, where Maeve, who's the madam of the um, local brothel, is uh, talking to Hector, who's like the sexy bad guy. That I love that the man in black says, you look really workshopped, like somebody yeah. marketing <laughs> focus group on you with your scar and stuff. He's like a guest, but a, but a blogger, you know, cr- criticizing it, you know, giving his Yelp rating. It's like, excuse me, <laughs> this bot, very fake. So they're having this, but they're having a very not fake conversation. And um, Hector helps Maeve discover that she actually was shot by a bullet that hasn't been taken out of her body and that these are not dreams that she's having, but that she actually has experienced this violence that she keeps remembering. What does it mean? I'm not crazy, Arthur. And that none of this matters. And her reaction as she's cobbling together an identity or maybe consciousness is to say what this means is that I'm not crazy and none of this matters, which to me was a very chilling moment because unlike Dolores, who keeps searching for meaning and thinking like, wow, maybe everything will be happy and I'll find my way out. Maeve has this very nihilistic response. And I think isn't that to me, that seems like that's the danger with robots as we're programming them now because they these are machines that can kill they don't have to kill but they can kill and they may not have a sense of what matters and what doesn't all they know is um, kind of violence and so how are people how are um, roboticists now dealing with that question of how do you make a robot actually care and think that things matter and assume that certain people matter and that they can't just Um, you know, turn the gun on everyone, uh, you know, that kind of fits a certain description. 
So that's one of the key challenges moving forward in the field, whether you're thinking about the use of these systems in war to the use of them driving down the streets, you know, the, the driverless cars that everyone from, yeah. you know, Uber to um, Google to whatnot are working on. At the end of the day, uh, the choices that you're making, um, whether it's who to shoot at or not to um, I'm you know, about to get into Iraq and which way do I go? There's moral choices that are wrapped up within these. There's very human choices. Now, the problem, the challenge for the field is uh, there's two sort of uh, ways that come out of this. One is people say, okay, well, what if we could just program it to follow the law? For example, why don't, you know, in war, why don't we just have it programmed to follow the Geneva Conventions? That way, not only will the robot follow it, but guess what? Humans violate the law all the time. So actually, you know, the opposite of what you were saying, we could end up in a much better world where there's you know, less violation, there's less war crimes. Mm-hmm. The challenge with that is it's not easy to turn legal code into software code. It, to use like a real world example, what if there was a tank that was um, – carrying out ethnic cleansing in a village. So, you know, blowing up homes and the like, but on top of the tank, little kids were riding. Mm -hmm. That's not a, that's not a made up case. That was actually a case in Kosovo. Or what if a sniper is shooting at you and they've got uh, two little kids sitting on their shoulder. So they're lying down, they're shooting between the legs of little kids. Mm -hmm. That's not a made up case. That's a case from Somalia. You know, you and I could have this long debate on whether you should shoot back or not and collateral damage issues. And both of us could be, you know, trying to be very ethical and have very good arguments. And each of us might walk away from it with an opposite conclusion. So to think somehow like, oh, the robot will solve it because you can easily transfer this over, that's that's a challenge. And again, that's actually, you know, not philosophy. That's, you know, Isaac Asimov, the, the three laws of robotics, actually all of his stories are about how the laws keep getting violated, yeah. right? That they're not ironclad. They keep the second contradicting cha- each other, the laws. Exactly, exactly. And then the machines kind of, you know, sometimes go stir crazy because of that. The <laughs> second thing that happens, and I think we're you know, seeing this start to play out in the show, is to have better systems to have them be more useful, make you more money, solve more problems, uh, be more ethical in war, whatever. We want them to be learning. We want them to um, be learning machines. That's the next stage in artificial intelligence, that they can evolve. They can sort of make sense of the world that they're in. And you see this in lots of different ways. Um, A good real-world example would be the system called TRACE, called Target Recognition and Adaption in Contested Environments. So basically, it's targeting software that learns. And the idea is that it will get you a, a lower false alarm rate than humans when it's trying to figure out what targets to hit. Sounds great, okay? Mm-hmm. The interesting question, though, is how do you test something that evolves, that learns? So it operates one way in the lab, but if it's learning, once it goes out in the real world, it's reacting, it's changing, it's evolving, which is exactly what you want to happen, except now it's doing things that you didn't plan for. That's by definition what it's supposed to do, except if it's doing things you didn't plan for, then hmm, it gets you into very different areas. And so this is a – I think we are seeing this in the show. You know, They're evolving. They're learning from each other. They design them to do that, uh, and yet 
now things start to go awry. But that's also what the Pentagon's starting to wrestle with, with projects like this TRACE program. Yeah, and it's interesting because we've also been talking about this a lot in the realm of AI, just software AI, and or what's called AI, but is really machine learning. And where you have, you know, an algorithm or a robot that's trying to learn from um, a data set. And what if the data set, as you were suggesting, is full of contradictory information or things that you didn't expect? And so your perfectly ethical robot, who was very, very nice and good and followed all the rules in the lab, goes out into the field and starts seeing people do things that are uh, racist or genocidal or uh, just, you know, people having... Um, you know, PTSD, uh, all kinds of real world things that happen in battle and in the heat of the moment. And if this robot or if this algorithm is learning from that, you kind of get a Westworld situation where the robots are exposed only to the kind of most extreme forms of human behavior. And that's the data set they're working from. And it may not be the kind of data set they would get if they were in a UN conference room and everybody was saying, <laughs> you know, well, but, you know, we should do the most ethical thing in this situation and, <laughs> and make sure that all of the civilians survive. So. Yeah, so you're seeing it go in two directions that are linked to the real world and, and then that takes you into the show. So one is much of the um, uh, AI or, you know, discussions of, I, I don't like the term, but it's used on a big data. It's basically yeah. trying to make sense of data that's either controlled or making connections between different data sets. But the next version of it that we're seeing a lot of interest in work on is, okay, but how do I not just take unstructured data, but gather in new data? Okay, well, what we see in the real world, but also in the show is humans bring in this unstructured data. They also bring in poisonous data. So, you know, the, the role that the, the it's not just the, the guests are showing the worst sides of humanities, to go back to what we talked about before. If, if they're out there to live out their best and worst fantasies, then the machines are learning, you know, not from our best side, but also our worst side. But then also the humans may be bringing in information that throws things for a loop uh, that does not compute, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and, you know, again, that's, that's something that you can think about. Uh, we've already seen that. Um, would be examples. Oh, like what's played out with like the attempts at, you know, uh, chat bots that, you know, all of a sudden start spouting off racist things or, um, you know, Microsoft chat bot. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, you can see this and sometimes look, um, this also goes to the Ford character. One of the problems today in, um, computer science, but Silicon Valley in particular is it's not a very diverse place. So it tends to reflect a certain kind of mentality. When I say diverse, it's not, you know, it's engineers, typically white male engineers who are, uh, attend a limited number of universities. Doesn't mean there's anything wrong with that, but they bring in, you know, a certain way of looking at the world. We've seen that in the, how much information should be uh, shared with the police or not. Well, if you grow up uh, in one part of the country versus another, you might have a very different attitude towards how much you want to share with the police or not. And so, you know, again, the, the creator's foibles, uh, their background can um, play out in the way that the machines act. 
Yeah, it's so interesting. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, war in Westworld, because I know you've thought a lot about robots and war. And we get uh, toward the end when um, William the White Hat and uh, Logan the Black Hat, uh, they do their mission, they shoot up a bunch of bad guys, and then they take a prisoner who says that he can take them to Pariah. And that's an area we haven't heard about before, but... If you're a super nerd like me and you're looking at the uh, Westworld corporate website, which is a um, <laughs> which is a, a sort of a fan site or a site for fans um, where you can, where you pre-buy your tickets. Um, yeah, exactly. Where you can buy your tickets and you can learn things about the park. One of the things you can do is talk to a bot whose name is Aiden and ask Aiden questions about um, Westworld. And so what Aiden says, I'm just going to read this uh, little bit of stuff that Aiden says. Uh, Aiden says, Pariah is the gateway to ultimate danger and sin in Westworld. The delicious orgy of decadence that awaits you is beyond any indulgence you've experienced. There is no law in Pariah, and since it's filled with soldiers, war is the perpetual state of things. And then war, and then Aiden goes on to say that war in Westworld is a complex narrative that pulls from the Texas annexation, civil war, reconstruction, Mexican revolution, and other historical skirmishes. So we can throw in anything. Uh, and it's the <laughs> hardest game in the park. So what, what do you make of that as someone who's, who's thought about robots and war? Like maybe why these wars? What, what does it mean to put robots back in time in the 19th century? Um, what, what do you think is going on here? Well, one, it, it, it's amusing to me that the that means you know all the things that we've seen in the town where they arrive, uh, you know, from mass killing, shootings in the streets to uh, you know the whorehouse. Well, you know, apparently this is like Salt Lake City compared to <laughs> Vegas. Um, you know, so uh, look, I I think if you look in that time period that they're drawing from, uh, some of the keys that would are most likely to play out or kind of lessons to pull from is they are periods of war, but they're periods of war where very few rules were followed. Uh, the reality is war does, you know, people say all's fair in love and war, but actually there are rules in both love and war. People violate the rules all the time, but there are rules which let us know whether you're acting right or wrong in war. So, you know, taking a prisoner versus, you know, killing them in the back of the head. Both happen in war, but we know one is the right act and the other is not because of the, the, the rules, much like cheating and love. We know cheating happens, but people aren't supposed to do it. So there are rules. If you go back to that period, particularly on the frontier, but if you're looking at the wars that played out, particularly in the, the Southwest, the rules were constantly violated you know, as opposed to mostly being followed, uh, rarely being followed. Part of that, and I think the parallel here with humans and robots, is that the sides tended to look at the other as not human or less than human. So that's why you would have these you know, massacres on either side, killing of women and children alike, because they didn't look at the other uh, group, the other ethnicity, whatever, as 
human. Same thing, you know, civil war, you, you have slavery and the like. So I think that's one of the things that it may um, draw upon. I'm also intrigued by the idea of uh, saying, you know, this is a realm of soldiers. My guess is actually it's not going to be soldiers in the way that we think of it in terms of defined, organized units. It's not going to be large, you know, 7th Cavalry uh, versus the Mexican Army. My guess is it's more of kind of what we've seen before of these, you know, be it gangs, posses, raiding party, um, kind of all this melding together where, uh, and again, it's not organized uh, and therefore kind of more chaotic. Yeah, and maybe I'm wondering if, if also it's the case that these are all wars that were changed by technology. I mean, wasn't this the era of the repeating rifle and sort of getting new gun technologies that kind of changed the game? It is. And again, that's, you know, will you have one side having a big advantage over the other in technology? In the real world, that mattered. You know, and it, it's everything from the horses introduced to the first firearms that utterly changes Native American culture, how the wars there play out, which tribes were ascendant or not, the rise of the Sioux, the Comanche and the like, to um, then, you know, of course, you get the arrival of whether it be the Spanish and the Mexican um, and the Texans and the settlers and the like. And then, you know, did they have a firepower advantage, as you say, then you get repeating rifles. So that's one of the things, you know, will we see that play out in the game? And part of why that um, is important we clearly have some kind of technologic kind of regulation over firearms, a limiting factor that can't kill the humans. Yeah. I'm wondering how they do that with bladed weapons. Yeah. You know, we said there's a limit on which robots can use them. Uh, that was in a prior episode where the, the robot wandered off and they were sort of freaked out that it was one that had a license to have an ax. It also, frankly, applies to how the humans interact. Yeah, I assume... You know, these futuristic throwback firearms, uh, you know, you can shoot a robot. Can you shoot another human? Probably not. That would harm sales if guests were actually killing other guests. But bladed uh, weapons, that doesn't seem to be something mechanical or kind of software based that you could control. So you could uh, imagine maybe that either is something we see in a plot twist or it raises the stakes. You know, they say the further you get out, the scarier it is. I don't know, but that's something I've, I've been curious about so far. And maybe that plays out now when you think about it's sort of a ironic twist on the history. The group with the bladed weapons could be actually more lethal in the game than those that had the historic gunfire advantage. Hmm, that is interesting. Okay, so I have one final question to ask you, which is, what do you think that the maze is? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, look, we're, we're really early on and all the different Easter eggs and the like, and I, I do like how it started out as a fairly straightforward show, and then they're kind of dropping more and more uh, twists on you, as opposed to shows that, uh, you know, are like, oh, it's, it's all like kind of mythology and conspiracy from the start. My sense right now is the maze is literally the way off the world and the way that the robotic systems become truly human. So it's the escape in uh, both meanings of the term. Mm -hmm. And then I guess like my my sort of add on to that is, do you think that in this, I mean, when you imagine the world of Westworld that, you know, kind of is beyond the park, do you think that people are dealing with robots all the time? 
Or do you think that they're kind of isolated in this park just based on how we're seeing people interact with them? Yeah, it's a really good question. It, it turns on that idea of is this actually on planet Earth or is it somewhere else? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, again, there, we'll see what happens, but I, I think it is somewhere else. I do think it might even be sort of an equivalent of kind of a somewhere where the machines are kept limited, perhaps even, you know, to do a sci-fi twist because of the bad things that happened in the real world. Maybe this is the only place where we do have robotics now. Uh, that we've sort of gone from a world where there were robotics in lots of different places and for whatever reason it freaked people out, caused certain problems. And so we're, we now have this park somewhere else where they're kept, uh, you know, kind of think of it as the equivalent of a game preserve uh, that, you know, you can visit, but we can't let them free in the real world again. That would be an interesting sort of a twist. And part of it may be because of the inability to distinguish machine from human, because if we're, you know, they showed the earlier versions of the machines, a very kind of mechanical versus these ones that, uh, you know, seem to be made with organic matter. So it'd be very difficult to detect them. It also would be a little bit of an homage to the original Westworld movies, uh, you know, because the, the first one was just set within the world. And, you know, the machines now being let loose in the real world deposes humans. So that might be another uh, sort of twist homage to it. Mm-hmm. And also, actually, that happens in Dune as well. I don't know if you're familiar with the... Well, I mean, look, it happens backstory. in all sorts of, of know, sci-fi, it's right? Common, I, it's a very common idea. That's a, that's a it actually, actually the, the very first mention the creation of the word robot itself is from a a play in the 1920s and robota is, is, is taken from the Czech word for surf or servitude and in this very first use of the the word, uh, the robots get smart, rise up, and then go off into the world. Uh, so this has always been part of the robot theme. So no one can really uh, claim it as their own unless you you know swing back literally to the origin story in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, built into the robot is the robot uprising, basically. That's, yes, that's exactly. Of- and that raises is interesting. You know, are we? The, the debate about controlling AI, controlling robots has always been about the robot uprising, right? Yeah. Well, what if it's just about it's sort of the equivalent of gun control, yeah. that bad people can use these things to do bad stuff, and that's why we need to control it. Um, it's a very different kind of slightly more boring debate, but maybe more realistic. Yeah, I actually, I, I just wanted to ask you super quickly, um, are you are you one of the people who kind of believes that AI is, you know, a, a super existential threat? Um, and, you know, you know what I'm talking about. I, I, my, I'm, I'm a realist on it, and <laughs> you know, my argument is, um, so the people who think we can preemptively ban it, I'd want to know what example in history do they have of where that's actually happened. Mm-hmm. Um, the different way of put, you know, putting it is there's, they will also have to stop capitalism, war, and science. Mm-hmm. You know, capitalism, there's too much money to be made in applying these systems. You know, and you get this like uh, irony of like uh, whatever Elon Musk is funding, you know, these programs and assigning these letters, and yet he's also you know pushing forward in a different space. So there's so much money to to make from it. War, the different sides of the world think this might help them in battle, so that's why they're working on it. Science, 
science is always about pushing boundaries. So to me, you know, this isn't going to happen that way. It's more about can we regulate it? Can we shape it? Mm-hmm. Can we set the, the rules where it's allowed to be used, where it's not allowed to be used? So that's kind of my take is let's be realistic about it rather than um, either being the people who say we can stop it or the opposite side, which is the like, you know, the Silicon Valley, we could just build an app and solve poverty. Like, no. <laughs> So it's yeah. it's it's trying to be in the middle and um, did a piece uh, about a month back, maybe two months back, using the example of um, there's a, a policy within the military on um, whether we can uh, continue to research lethal autonomous weapons. And, you know, the first is to make the point, this is not sci-fi. We are working on it. But the second is what's interesting, the policy um, that shapes it it um, has a sunset clause of 2017. So Trump or much more likely Clinton will decide the policy on killer robots next year. Wow. Like whether we, not whether we sort of have them, but whether we continue to research them or not. Right. Um, the policy was, it was created in 2012 and it has a five year sort of, you know, it says, okay, and at the end of five years, this policy either has to be renewed and if it's not, then there's no policy. A decision has to be made, even not making a decision is a decision. So it's kind of an interesting, you know, and so my argument is, okay, you know, you're going to have to make a decision. So start working through, you know, where you think these things are okay, where they're not. Um, so like the parallel in the show would be, you know, uh, is it I'm okay having killer robots at sea because there's not, you know, a bunch of humans around. So civilian damage isn't as bad as I don't want killer robots roaming around urban settings. So in the show, you know, maybe that's one of the things we've created this sort of park to, to you know, p- people said we're okay with these robots, but only if we keep them in this park. Yeah, that's so interesting. And it's also, it puts in perspective a lot of these questions that you hear Silicon Valley types asking about, are we going to build a super intelligence that supersedes us? And that seems, you know, so distant when we have these immediate issues of, well, we actually have robots now that are autonomous that can kill people. And, you know, why are we worried about some... Should you be pushing out a car with the same, you know, beta test model as an app, yeah. right? You know, so they're like, oh, it's, 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 you know, we're going to learn from customers and they'll give us feedback. You're like, yeah, but the stakes are kind of different when it's a physical thing that can kill people. Yeah. Um, and you get, you know, well, yes, it killed someone, but, um, you know, statistically it most likely saved more people. And you're like, yeah, that's true. That's an engineering response. That's not, going to work with public affairs and politics of the day. So don't, you know, don't look at this only through this sort of statistical lens. We're seeing this right now where as the stakes get higher, the sort of creators, the Silicon Valley people are now have, they're realizing they, they actually have to pay attention to the politics side. And yet, you know, they just want to invent. Um, this is the same example. So, you know, my next nonfiction book is on social media and how it's being used in politics and war. And you can see this where, you know, the creators of Facebook, Twitter, whatever, they're just engineers who wanted to build cool tech. And then they said, but guess what? Why it's really great is it brings people together. That's why what I'm doing is not just about making money. It's, it's a positive. And you're like, yeah, that's true. But guess what? It's also bringing together um, 
you know, Nazis and, and, and ISIS. And you can't say, you know, well, I'm not responsible for that too. You have to, you, you have to set a policy for how people are going to use your tech. And so they've kind of avoided it. Um, and now they're, they're playing catch up. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us and uh, talking all about robots in the future. Thanks for having me on. You've been listening to Decrypted, Ars Technica's podcast about all the television that we're obsessing about. I'm your host, Annalie Newitz, and I'll be here every week obsessing over Westworld until the season is over. So be here next week and we'll talk some more.